yourselves a hand. You got out of bed today. It's going to be a warm day. Come on. It was easier to get out of bed this morning, but you still deserve it. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, you know, as we, we didn't sleep really well that day. Um, I just, I, I feel like I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't give you a little bit of a warning before we start. Uh, this morning, as you can see, last week was the family series called uh, Growing Up After We Die. said, I believe that hell is something that our kids need to learn about. And uh, I'm not going to say anything that uh, is going to uh, scare the hell out of them. But I will say things that are true. And we have our our kids ministry. Um, I let our ladies know beforehand, hey, I want you to know I'm going to give a So if you have kids in the room, there is absolutely no judgment if you get up right now and you march them down there and you check them into our kids' ministry because you don't want them to hear about hell this morning. There's no judgment. You're welcome to do that. There are are, uh, workers, amazing, amazing kids workers that are at our kids' check-ins. They're uh, right now at this moment ready to check your kids in. I believe they should be there, but I also hope that you can trust me that I'm not going to say anything about you. My kids are in here this morning, and uh, I'm not going to say anything that's going to scare them. So um, that's my heart. Last week, uh, man, I try to control my emotions sometimes, because especially at the beginning of a service. Because I want the energy to be up, I want you guys to be engaged, and I don't want to put you to sleep. And sometimes I just see a guy crying on stage and puts you to sleep. And I don't want to do that this morning. I want to make you laugh, I want to make you cry, I want to make you uh, shout, I want to make you scream, and I want to uh, just bring all that emotion out of you. God called me, I believe that God calls an emotional man to New England to pull the emotion out of people. Uh, <laughs> So this morning, as we as we talk about about hell, um, I want you to know that we have to start with uh, really I think two places. But maybe we'll start number one with with the goodness of God and and His righteousness. Uh, we have to start with Him. He's the one that created it. He's the originator originator of it, and uh, therefore we have to start with Him. And then we have to start with, or then we have to get to what He's looking for. It's important that that we get to what he's looking for, so that we know, um, like if, if if he created this horrible, terrible place, what is he looking for from me in relation to that? Uh, is 
So that's that's where we're going. Uh, you all probably know. I mean, like like even if you've never been in church, um, you know the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the picture of what what hell is like. Like like you you know that that there's like that the flames are with hell and that hell is hot and that you know all the terrible things about it. I don't have to go there. about how we have to talk about the, the righteousness of God and how good he is and then we have to get to what he, it is that that righteous life is looking for. That's where we're going this morning. Um, the fact of the matter is, if we do not accept hell for what it is, then it's hard to see God for who he is. It's hard to see God for how, how great and mighty and powerful he is and how wonderful the gospel is and how wonderful Jesus is and the fact that he would rescue that some of you may be sitting there and you have a hard time believing in a God that you that 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 does things that you perceive as bad to people that are that are good. I I get it. I understand that. We we, we are people that like justice. And we're gonna talk about justice in, in just a moment as well. Um, one way that Satan often convinces us that that hell is 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 not really the way that it is. Is is I, I'm afraid that that Satan has used preachers of the past that bang on pulpits that shout turn or burn, and we've allowed them to be the voice of hell, the voice of what hell is like, and we've allowed them to be the loudest. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to change that this morning, and I want to change that from being turn or burn to being God loves you. So he did everything that he could to keep you from going to such a terrible, awful place. So this morning we're going to start with a big idea that we started with last week. And I've, I've changed it up. I've tweaked it just a little bit. Because last week we said um, that what we believe about eternity is determines how we live today. I want to change that to say that what we believe about what happens after we die determines how we live today. You see, the fact of the matter is, is eternity, I looked it up this, this week, and, and, and I really kind of dug into that word, and, and the word eternity is really a word that is a Christian word, it's a religious word, um, it's, 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 it means to live after, after you know, to life after death, um, but I don't want to just speak to Christians this morning, and I realize that some of you 
may be in here this morning and not realize what eternity really is because it's a religious term. So we're talking about life after death this morning and and, and how we view life after death really determines a lot of, of well, it determines our heart is what it determines. You see, there's a lot of beliefs about eternity. I, I, I just looked some of them up this week. Um, and I, I wrote six of them down. I don't know if I'll even give them all to you because some of them are really pretty stupid. Number one is reincarnation. You've all heard of reincarnation, that we come back to life as something or someone else. Um, then there's the pessimist theory. This is the belief that, um, that we are already dead. Anybody want to sign up for that one? We're already dead? Pessimist theory? I'm all set. Then there's Plato's theory that is um, that after after death, our souls are immediately judged, and um, good souls go to the island of the blessed, and the bad souls go to be chastised. Um, then there's there's Pharaoh's theory, and that is that death is temporary. That's why Pharaoh wraps people in uh, toilet paper because. death is temporary. They're going to come back to life. Um, and then there's, this is my favorite that I found, um, the Stranger Things theory about life after death. Um, those of you that are Stranger Things people, I judge you deeply. Um, my confession to you. The Stranger Things theory is that the deceased aren't always truly dead, that they go to this place called the Upside Down. And all the Stranger Things fans the upside down, you can communicate with them through light bulbs. <laughs> uh, I got a lot of light bulbs around me right now. <laughs> and then there's uh, the nihilist theory, and that is that, that just what happens after you die is you just stop existing, that, that nothing happens after you die. And now you can see why some people act the way that they do, <laughs> especially Stranger Things folks. Uh, I'm not going to pick on you all According to the Pew Research study of 2014 religious landscape study, um, roughly 7 in 10, exactly 72% of Americans say that they believe in heaven. Heaven was defined in this, ser- in this, in this research as where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. That's what heaven is. 72% of people believe in heaven. In the same study, 58% of the adults believed in hell. You notice the discrepancy, 70, uh, 72% versus 58%. We, we like to believe in heaven. We like to believe in good things, but we don't like to believe in hell and bad things. In fact, um, most people believe that if, if hell exists, then ex- it exists for everyone except for them notice that no one goes to a funeral and talks about hell. They don't. That would be a bad funeral. And uh, I've done a few freaking funerals, and I have never talked about hell in those funerals. I'm actually doing a funeral this week, and I'm not going to talk about hell at that funeral, because let's be honest, no one wants to talk about hell at a funeral. 
the truth be told is that hell is a real place. I would much rather talk to, to you about hell this morning so that at your funeral you don't have to talk about hell. Come on, somebody. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus tells us about hell, tells us about heaven. He said this, and by the way, you can follow along with our youth, with our, our all of our notes for today in the YouVersion Bible app. You can, uh, you can see how to get there and on the slide up above me. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, it says, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and the gate is wide for many who choose that way, but the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few will find it. The gateway to heaven, itty bitty 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 big. The gateway to hell, big and wide, and and, and a highway, Jesus used the word, A, a, a road. But I'm convinced that Satan wants to con- wants to convince us that the gates are actually flip flops. That the gateway to heaven is wide and big, and everyone can go there. But the gateway to hell is itty bitty 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 bitty, and it's filled with terrible, rotten, no good murderers and thieves and child abusers. Those are the ones that go to hell. And that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that. That heaven is little, the gateway to heaven is little, but the gateway to hell is very, very broad, very, very big. But Satan wants to convince us of otherwise. So this leads us to a very important question this morning. It's an important question that we must ask is that if God is good, if he is loving, if he is kind, then why does hell even exist? Why is it? This morning I want to give you just two reasons that hell exists. And that the first reason that hell exists is hell exists so that God can deal with Satan in a righteous manner. So that God can deal with Satan in a righteous manner. According to Webster's Dictionary, the word righteous means to act according with divine or moral law. Or to be guilt, uh, guiltless from sin. To, uh, to not be guilty from sin. And because God is righteous, because God isn't guilty of sin, he is the one that gets to define what's good and what's bad. Because he is perfect. He's the one that defines what things are good. However, Satan is the one that he created hell for, and Satan is the representation of all things that are evil. Look at some of the descriptions that the Bible uses for uh, for Satan, um, I just wrote down a few of them. The devil—that's that's that's the one that we all call him, um, or Satan, or, or or the enemy, the deceiver, Lucifer, the father of lies, the originator of lies, the destroyer, the thief, and my favorite, El Diablo. My favorite. El Diablo is Spanish for devil. That was a joke. Talking about hell, you're making jokes. What kind of preacher are you? Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 says, Then the devil who had deceived them 
was thrown into the fiery lake and burning sulfur, joining the beast in the false prophet. There they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Ladies and gentlemen, God did not create hell for us. He created hell for Satan. The second reason that hell exists is so that God can deal righteously with unbelievers, with people that do not put their faith and their trust in, in, in Jesus. Because that's what he wants. He wants us to put our faith and our trust in him, and he wants us to trust him to keep us from hell. But when we don't, there is consequences, and this is where everything gets hairy. Everything gets nasty, sticky, messy, because this is where our feelings get involved. Because now we're talking about us. This is what we don't like. This is what's heavy. get involved, and this is where we say, you know what, God, I want heaven on my terms, not yours. You see, I want to define heaven the way I think it should be, and I want to define hell the way I think that should be. I want things my way. And so it gets hairy and sticky because, because we want to define heaven on our terms, but because God is righteous, we can't. Because we are not righteous. see, what happens oftentimes is we often say that hell is a place for people that are terrible, awful, rotten, that, that, it's, only, that it's only for them, and it's not for us. But the fact of the matter is, is that many of us that believe that often believe that when injustice takes place on earth, that justice must be served. But when it looks, when it comes to us, we, like we get to define what's right and what's wrong. But that's not how God works. And so we cannot define our own justice, ladies and gentlemen. That's not a good justice system. If you go to a criminal that has committed a crime and you ask them to the, ask them what is just in their situation, well, of course they're going to tell you that it's just for them to be released, for them to live free. But the fact of the matter is, is they're a criminal. They don't get to define their justice. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't get to define our justice. Pastor Adam, what's wrong with justice? There's nothing wrong with justice. There's absolutely nothing wrong with justice as long as we recognize righteousness. You see, we have to re recognize righteousness for what it is if we're going to understand justice. The problem is that we want God to look like us. We want God to be like us, but that would not make him God. I don't know about you, but every morning that I look in the mirror, I look at myself and I say, I cannot trust you. Anybody else? I can't trust you. Because Adam, you are deceitfully wicked, the Bible says. You are filthy rags, the Bible says. Therefore, you don't get to define what is just. I'm sorry this is a hard word, ladies and gentlemen. I'm trying to make it as light as possible. That's not going to work today. Hopefully it'll get better. It will, but I promise you it will. But the fact of the matter is, is we don't get to define what 
God to be our kind of loving, our kind of kind, our kind of righteous. I'm afraid that the reason we often try to define God as someone that looks like us is because we want to justify what we do. We want to justify our actions. We want to define him on our terms. We want him to agree with us. We want him to to do everything that we want him to do. And we want him to, to not just agree with us, but we want him to edify the things that we do that are wrong, to build us up in the things that we do that are wrong. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a world today that says, if you disagree with me, you cannot love me. If you disagree with me, that's not love. Ladies and gentlemen, that has to change. We have to get to a point where we can disagree with each other in love. Because if we can't, we're hopeless. We will not be united anymore. If we can't disagree, there is no union. There is no unification. There is no uniting. We have to get to the point where we can disagree in love and we can build each other up in that disagreement and we can sharpen each other. That we can can do it in love. We have this saying that we that we teach uh, in, in my refuge, and that is in the um, in the essentials we have unity in, in Jesus loving our loving for us, dying for us. We have unity in that. We have unity in the gospel. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. We can believe some things that aren't essential. There are dem- denominations that believe things that are that are non-essential to to our salvation. But when it comes to the things that are essential to salvation, we have unity in that, and we can bind together in that. We will always bind in agreement. But in the things that we disagree on, we can have liberty, so that in every belief that we have, we will always choose to show love. Even if it's disagreement. We have to get to the point where we can disagree. Second Thessalonians chapter one verse eight and nine says he will come with a mighty with mighty angels and flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from the gracious from uh, the glorious power. When we learn to accept just how bad hell is, we can begin to see just how great God is, ladies and gentlemen. Hell is a terrible, rotten place, but God is an amazing, gracious God. He created it for Satan, not for us. He created it to deal with us in a righteous way. And so we have to start with how great he is and how righteous he is so that we can get to the point where we talk about what he's looking for. You already understand how bad hell is. I don't have to convince you that that hell is a bad place. But I need I need to convince you this morning of what it is that, that righteous God is looking for this morning. And I'm thankful that Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 16 that I believe shows us what he's looking for. Jesus is telling a parable in Luke 16. A parable is simply a story, a fictional story. So the the characters that are involved in the story are not real. But he 
he's telling a story to, con- to, to convey, to, to, to illustrate a, a heavenly truth. Um, I, have a, I have a book at home called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes written by a guy by the name of Kenneth Avery. And, um, and it, when, I, when I got it, it's, it's, a, it's a thick book. It's, it's like a textbook, but um, I got it because I read a book by, by Bailey called The Cross of the Prodigal, and it opened my eyes to the prodigal son story like I've never knew, uh, knew but could, and, and I, I fell in love with his writing because he explained things about the Middle East, um, about, about Jesus telling stories um, in the Middle East, through Middle Eastern eyes that, that most of the time in, in Western culture we don't understand. So, in the book, uh, Jesus from Middle Eastern Eyes, he explains this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man and another man by the name of Lazarus. And we'll get there in just a moment. But one of the things that he tells in the story is that, or in the book, is that oftentimes in the Middle East, people talk about the pearly gates. They call them the pearly gate stories. Often they are led by St. Peter being at the gate and they, they, they proceed with often jokes and things like that. It reminded me of a, of a story that I told you a couple weeks ago about a husband that died, and he went to the pearly gates, and he met St. Peter there, and uh, St. Peter says, you know, welcome to heaven, and he says, I made it, I made it in, and he goes, um, well, you're not quite in the gates yet, first you have to spell a word, and the husband said, um, Great. What, what word do I have to spell? And he said, well, you know what, you get to, you get to choose. What, what word would you like to spell? And so the husband said, you know what, I can spell love. I'll spell love. L-O-V-E. And St. Peter says, oh, well, come on in. Come on in. And just that moment, the phone rings, and, and St. Peter goes, hey, you know what, I need to go get that phone. I'll be right back. And he goes and he answers the phone, and he, sa- and, and he says, but the man's like, hey, I just got here. Like, like I can't, I can't, you can't trust me with that right now. And he's like, don't worry, no one's going to die. I'll, I'll just go and answer it. And so he goes and answers the phone, and, and uh, just like that, the man's wife dies. She comes to the pearly gates, and she says, I made it into heaven. And he goes, no, not yet. I mean, you got to spell the word. And she said, well, what word do I have to spell? And he said, seven sabachthans. Pearly gate stories like that. Now, that's not true, obviously, but it's a funny joke. You didn't laugh. that Jesus tells is in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 28. But one of the things that Kenneth Bailey talks about is that this is a trilogy of of, of parables. It goes along with two other parables because, you see, it's, it's a story about our possessions. The first story that Jesus tells is the story of the prodigal son. And it's a story about a son that that wastes his father's money. And then the second story, the second parable that Jesus tells is the story of the dishonest honest steward that wastes his boss's money. And then this is the story that we're going to read this morning, and it's the story of the rich man that wastes his own money. Luke chapter 10, or chapter, chapter 16, verse 10, we have to start with the context of the parable that Jesus is telling. And this is a part of the context. In verse 10, it says this. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest 
with greater responsibility. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, you will who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with the things of your own? No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and be enslaved to money. Whoa, Pastor Adam, I thought we were talking about hell this morning, not about my pocketbook. Well, believe it or not, the two actually kind of go together. You see, oftentimes when Jesus told, talked about, about hell, he often paired it by talking about money. He often paired it by talking about our possessions. You see, the Bible teaches us that where your treasure is, your heart is also. And I think that that is extremely, extremely, extremely important in the context of this story that we're reading this morning. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. You see, Jesus knew that our money would be our biggest obstacle in getting us through that narrow, narrow gate. He knew it would be a huge obstacle that you would put your trust in. And, and that's, that's also very dangerous. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is, it, um, says that it is hard for a rich man to get to heaven. So we take a look at the story that we're talking about this morning, Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said that there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, and who lived each day in luxury. At the gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there, longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died, Lazarus, and was carried by the angels set beside. Abraham at the heavenly banquet, the rich man also died, and was buried. Sounds kind of like the story I just told you, right? About the husband, right? Kind of kind of going there. Verse 23, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham and at a far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. You had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. I'm sorry, I, I skipped some, some lines there. Send Lazarus over here to dip his to dip the tip of his fingers in water and hold my tongue. I am in anguish until he returns. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here, be comforted, and you are in torment. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over from here. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, have, please send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in the same torment. This is the story that Jesus told. Now, this is what one thing that is interesting about this parable that Jesus told. Jesus told many, many parables um, in, in all of Scripture. But out of all the, the parables that Jesus told, fictional stories, Jesus only gave the name to one of his characters. Out of all of his stories, he only named one of them. It was Lazarus. 
that tells me that Lazarus' name is really important in the story. And the reason it's important is because Lazarus simply means the one that is helped by God. The one that is helped by God. There are some important things that we want to point out about these characters. It's obvious there's three characters in the story. There's Lazarus, the rich man, and Abraham. Those are the only three characters that you need to pay attention to. It's obvious that Lazarus represents those that go to heaven. He doesn't represent the poor, ladies and gentlemen. He represents those that go to heaven. We're going to talk about that because there's, and, and by the way, I am simply scratching the surface of the depth of the story of Jesus. It is a huge story. And maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll speak and, or preaching on, on just exactly how deep this story is. I'm scratching the surface. So Lazarus represents those that go to heaven, and the rich man represents those that go to hell. That doesn't mean if you're rich, you go to hell. That doesn't mean if you're poor, you go to heaven. But there is a component that Jesus is looking for in the story that a lot of times through our Western eyes we miss. And the component that is missing is the heart. The heart of Lazarus and the heart of the rich man. You see, Lazarus cannot walk. Lazarus has sores on his body. He is laying outside the home of the rich man. And the rich man's dogs, the dogs that rich that, that licked Lazarus' sores belong to the rich man. The rich man's dogs had more compassion than the rich man had. Lazarus would allow them to lick his sores. Because it was often believed that the lick of a, of a dog would offer healing. Now, Kenneth Bailey in his book says that Lazarus could very easily represent the, the New Testament Job. That's how bad his life was. Common practice in the Middle East was to carry people that were crippled, that could not walk, to the home of a rich person and leave them at the gate. Because the rich person was the only person in town that had the means necessary to, to offer hope to the crippled, to the poor, to the needy. So their friends would carry them to the only person that could do anything to help them. The rich man. It says that he is wealthy. He is rich. He is filthy, stinking rich. We know that because he dressed in purple, which was a very a sign of being very wealthy. But Jesus also, this is my favorite part of the story, actually. Jesus points out, this is how rich he was. He points out that he's wearing fine linen. What that means is that his underwear was expensive. Even his drawers cost a lot of money, ladies and gentlemen. Like, that's how, that's how rich he is. That's what, that's what linens represented in, in, in the scriptures. And so, he is so stinking rich. He has a lot of money. Jesus was a master storyteller. Like, like, just think about it. With this story, he can grip the hearts of people that haven't put their faith in him, but he can also grip the hearts of people that do believe in him. That, that, and and his, his stories are timeless. Because I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I think about all the friends that I have 
that just need to put their faith in Jesus so that they can avoid the place of torment. They just need to convince their hearts so that they can experience heaven with him forever and how good he is. But at the, at, at the, at the same time, it, it grips the hearts of people that do not believe in Jesus because they see how, how tormenting hell can be. exchange between rich, the rich man and Abraham. Notice, the rich man only speaks to Abraham. We're going to talk about that in a moment. In fact, um, the conversation between the rich man and Abraham gives us five things that I believe we can see about hell this morning that are important. I'm going to give it to you. Number one, the rich man knows what is going on. In hell, you are fully conscious and fully aware of what's going on. He is aware, and he, and he is aware that he is miserable. All he wants is a drink of water. Number two, we see that the rich man's eternal destiny was final. He couldn't leave. He was stuck. He couldn't fix it. It was too late. In the exchange with Abraham, he's begging to send someone my way to dip their, their finger in water so that my, my tongue can be quenched. Number three, we see that the rich man still did not admit that he was wrong. Stubborn old rich man. Still doesn't admit that he's wrong. He only wanted to, he only wanted help because he was miserable. He didn't admit that he was wrong. He never spoke to Lazarus. He never said, Lazarus, I'm sorry I didn't see you then. You see, the rich man saw Lazarus with his eyes, but he never saw him with his heart. The heart is the biggest component of this entire story. Number four, the rich man begs for someone to just go and tell his brother. He says, fine, if I can't help myself, go and tell the world. Go and tell somebody. Just let them know how bad this place is. Kenneth Bailey points out, verse 26, it says, and besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over from here to there. Bailey suggests that according to culture, that it, and, and according to the original language, that it was probably Lazarus that offered to go. He's, he's whispering Abraham's ear at the same time. Abraham, I'll go. I'll go. Just let me go. I'll go. And he says, no, no. He can't. You see, Lazarus' heart was in the right place. He was thinking about Lazarus, but he was thinking about Lazarus because he, he already had put his faith in the God that could save him. It had nothing to do with his status, which is number five. Our salvation has nothing to do with our status, how much money we have, the color of our skin. You see, notice that the rich man says, Hey, Father Abraham, you know what that tells us? That tells us what the rich man's nationality was. He was Jewish. And, and, and as Jesus is telling the story, people are hearing that, you know what, even though I'm Jewish and even though I'm, I'm from the children of Israel, the ones that God chose, that isn't enough to save me. It's not about our status, ladies and gentlemen. It's not about how much money we have. It's not about the color of our skin. It's about our hearts. 
rich man calls Abraham father. Lazarus was not saved because he was poor, because he was crippled, because he was sick. He was saved because even though his life was a mess, come on somebody. Even though his life was a mess, his faith was in the one that could save him. His heart belonged to the God that would send his only son, Jesus, to die in his place. And he believed that Jesus was the son of God. There's one overall theme in all this story that Jesus tells. Jesus is screaming, I just want your heart. But yet Satan wants us to think that it's really about hell and about the chasm that's in here, which which is important. But that's not what it's about. to do everything that he can to convince you that it's not about your heart. In fact, he wants to do everything he can to convince you to give your heart to everything else except for Jesus. He'll do everything that he can to distract you so that your hearts have that. So that that has your heart. convince us that it is all about our money. Satan will convince us that it's all about our family. Wow. Satan will convince us that it's all about our, our job or our education. He will convince us that our hearts need to be wrapped up in those things, in success, and everything else, and the American dream, and all that other stuff. But ladies and gentlemen, your hearts need to be wrapped up in Jesus. that we missed at the very beginning of the story. The Bible says that the rich man lived every day in luxury. Now, Kenneth Bailey points this out. Not Adam Harrell. Kenneth Bailey points this out. That the word every day is important because that means that as a Jewish man, the rich man did not observe the Sabbath. See, he had all the resources to serve people, but instead he made his people serve him, his servants serve him on the day that they should be in, at the synagogue, to be at the church, to be at the temple. You see, every day was wrapped up in luxury. Adam, you better be careful. Every day was wrapped up in luxury.
your ticket to heaven. But your heart is also your ticket to hell. Jesus died so that we could give him our heart. So that we could live forever with him. Do me a favor, close your eyes, bow your heads. Stand to your feet if you would. Satan wants to convince us that luxury is worthy of our hearts. He wants to convince us that other people all around us are worthy of our hearts. The rich man, the rich man saw Lazarus every day with his, with his eyes. But he never saw him with his heart. If you're a Christian in this room, I just want to ask you to open up the eyes of your heart this morning and start seeing your friends that need to know about Jesus. Start telling your friends, start risking for their sake. Well, I don't know, I don't know what they're going to think about me. If, if they know that I'm a Christian, if they know that that I go to church, they're going to they're gonna start to look at me differently. Ladies and gentlemen, their soul is worth the risk. Their soul is worth the risk. Start seeing them with your heart instead of just seeing them with your eyes and your mind. You allow, we allow the thief to convince us in our mind, ladies and gentlemen. That's a whole other story. That's a whole other message. The thief will often rob your heart by convincing you of things in your mind. Oh, man, I'm preaching to myself. Stop letting Satan convince you of things in your mind that belong in your heart. Some of you even may be here this morning, and you might think you know Jesus because you've done all the right things. You've made that check done that check, you've done that check, and you look at your relationship with God as the things that you do. But ladies and gentlemen, the relationship with God has to do with the things that come up our hearts. He wants all of us. So this morning I want to ask, who has your heart? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Pastor Adam, I've done a lot of things. I've got my heart up on a lot of things, but it has not been wrapped up in Jesus. And this morning, I want to do everything I can to place my heart in his hands. Ten seconds of bravery is all that takes to give Jesus your heart. Would you be brave enough to say, Pastor Adam, that's me by raising your hand. Anybody at all? Thank you very much. Anybody else? Anybody else? Pastor Adam, I want to give Jesus my heart this morning. If you raise your hand. I want to invite you to say this prayer from your heart. And believe it in your soul. Say, God, 
know I need you. I know that Jesus was your son that died for me. So that I could follow you. Not just with my head, but with my heart. And so God, right now, the best thing that I want to do is to put my heart in your hands. I am all of yours. I will do what you ask me to do. I will go where you ask me to go. All because of what Jesus has done for me. I admit that because I have sinned, I deserve hell. But because Jesus died for me, I can live with you. got a hand clap of praise today. Come on. Come on. I want to, uh, I want to tag on to that. If you are a believer and you have friends that need to hear this message, share it with them. We, we put this message online to make it easy for you to share your faith. Share it with them. But not just that, but, but be bold this week. Tell somebody Jesus loves them. Tell them that, 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 that Jesus wants their heart. Let's see what God does, all right? Amen. Give God some more praise to this. Sing a song. Come on.